2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I am going to make you stand one more time uh, in honor of God's Word. He is worthy of our reverence. His Word is worthy of our uh, just acknowledgement and esteem. And so let's read together as we stand 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We are actually going to finish the chapter today. So verse 10 down to verse 15. It says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God because of the proof given by this ministry. They will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we pray a blessing over Your Word today and ask that You would indeed encourage our hearts and enlighten our minds and cause us to grow in our own generosity, our own liberality. Help us, Lord, to, um, to grow in, with respect to uh, imitating Your example as the most generous giver of all. And uh, Father, we just pray that You would also make us aware of needs. Lord, this whole entire chapter and these two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, they are all rooted in the fact that the church saw a need and they met it. And so, Lord, like you taught Titus, teach us, Lord, to meet pressing needs. Make us aware. Make us others-minded. Help us to have a heart for the needs of others, even financially. Lord, give us a heart of compassion and help us to look out for the interests, not just of ourselves, but of others first. Lord, thank you. We pray that you would bless our time. Help me, God. Give me a mouth to speak and encourage your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And I want to focus uh, this sermon today on what Paul called the harvest of your righteousness. And so we're going to talk about the harvest of righteousness, because I think this whole sermon, strung together, is focused on and is pouring out of that very phrase, the harvest of your righteousness. So the Corinthians are, are sort of painted in a light that they are harvesting. They are on the brink of gathering together all of these blessings that God is ready to pour out upon them because of their liberality because of their liberality. But if you begin there in verse 10, you notice that Paul sort of continues the idea of reaping and sowing, and here emphasizing that it is God who supplies our need. In doing this, he is quoting from Isaiah 55, and probably alluding to Hosea 11, but more closely, Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11 He's quoting from this passage, and this passage, if you go back to Isaiah 55, is rooted in this idea that God's Word is able, 
that God's word is powerful. Therefore, God is powerful. God is able. If God's word is able and God's word is powerful, then it is stressing the ability of God. That's what it's doing. The ability of God. Aren't you glad today that you serve a powerful God? That you don't serve a God who is impotent. You serve a God who is able, who is, who is powerful to meet all of our needs. If I can just uh, broaden out the principle here and the application here. He, he is supplying the Corinthians' needs in order to be involved in this contribution. But brothers and sisters, we have a God who will supply all of our needs. Paul says that very thing in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, right in the similar context as the Philippians are going to give, he says this, he says in verse 20, or excuse me, verse 19, says, my God, verse 19 of chapter 4, Philippians, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is the type of God that we serve. And, redemptively speaking, this is the type of power at work in the life of Israel at this time in Isaiah 55. He says in Isaiah 55.10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word which uh, be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which it was sent, for which I sent it. Isn't that wonderful? With the same faithfulness, brothers, that we see here in Texas, sometimes when the rain comes, you know, not all the time, sometimes we're in like a three-year drought, but sometimes the rain comes, right? It waters the fields all around Texas. There's so many fields. You know, my brother Manny and I, we're always talking about the fact that, you know, Texas is just endless. It just goes on and on. You just look out and there's this field after field. You know, right where we live there, the tip there of Little Elm, if you look over by Prosper Savannah, it just, just looks like the fields go forever all up in the Oklahoma and well, when the water comes down on those fields, all of these beautiful weeds sprout, because <laughs> that's what they are around here, right? Just weeds growing all over the place. But the water doesn't fall in vain. It accomplished the purpose. It watered the earth, and it sprouted, and it bore fruit, or this time it bore weeds. But it accomplished its purpose. God is saying, in the same way, when you see the rain falling, Remind yourself, when God's word falls, it will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it forth. Praise the Lord. He says, you're on the brink of the harvest of your righteousness. God is going to give the increase. This word increase is the word that means for something to grow, to cause something to grow. And it's oftentimes found in agricultural contexts. God is, God is the grower. He's the master farmer. He is the one that's providing all of the riches, if you would, the soil. He's providing, you know, all the, uh, all the, 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 the stuff that makes a, a, a grass grow. I, you know I don't have a green thumb because I don't even know what any of that stuff is called. You know, but the fertilizer, whatever, miracle grow. There you go. Just 
trying to think of walking down, you know, Lowe's, you know, what the bags are called, okay? But God is the one that gives us the miracle grow for our liberality. Once again, he repeats kind of the same notion, this harvest of righteousness, and then he expounds on that, verse 11, you will be enriched in everything, same way of saying the same thing, for, here's the purpose, all liberality, all liberality, so that you could be a generous church. You remember, if you go back, uh, just, just, uh, just uh, previously here in verse 9, or excuse me, in, uh, here in chapter 9 and verse 5, remember that um, there was a threat of covetousness. And so Paul is looking to God to be faithful to the Corinthians, to supply their needs, and that th- the reason why he's supplying their needs is not for them to be greedy, but for them to be free in their giving, liberal in their, gr- in their giving, generous in their, gi- in their giving. He, he says that this, would, this, this gift, this generosity would not be affected by covetousness. And that's one of the things that he's trying to protect against. Now, Paul's aim in this whole thing, right, is to produce worship to God, to produce worship to God. And that's the very first thing. This harvest of righteousness can be explained by the things that it will produce. And the very first thing that it produces is thanksgiving to God. He says that very thing. He says, it will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. You remember earlier in the book, in chapter 8, verses 19 19 and 20, Paul saw himself as an administrator. He was an administrator of this gift, of this bountiful gift. But here, even more so, Paul sees himself as administering worship to God, thanks to God. If you would, he sees himself as an agent of thanksgiving. He's so zealous to produce thanksgiving in the church. If you would, he takes on sort of a priestly duty of a producing sacrifice of praise, to use the language of Hebrews 13. Sacrifice of praise. An offering of thanksgiving that God is well pleased with. And God is the one that is doing it. God is the one that is doing it. Notice just here in this text, in this context here, God is being credited with all this activity. He is the supplier. He is the multiplier. He is the increaser. He is the one enriching them. And he is also the one who gives most. If you look at verse 15. Now, the second thing then, closely related, is it doesn't just produce thanksgiving, but it's also producing the glory of God itself. Look at uh, verse uh, 12. He says, For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but, excuse me, but is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. That's a lot, right? That's a lot. But many of these themes Paul has already talked about. He's already mentioned these things. But I focus on that word. He will give, they will give, or they will glorify God. They will glorify God. Literally, it's a present tense 
word, a present tense participle, which literally means our glorifying, glorifying God. In other words, glorifying God is the attendant circumstance of their liberality. That is what they can expect to be fulfilled in this harvest of righteousness. Glory to God. You see, brothers and sisters, again, we have to revisit this idea of a Jew and Gentile division. Uh, F.F. Bruce said that there has been no greater division ever in humanity like that breach between Gentile and Jew. That that's the greatest division ever, more than black and white more than any other division, racially, ethnically, whatever you can imagine. Jew-Gentile controversy, Jew-Gentile division has been the greatest of the greatest division of all. So what we're seeing here has massive gospel implications. The Jews and the Gentiles are becoming one, exactly the way that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 and in many, many, many other places. I have about 15 references here that I don't even want to look at because then I'll be tempted to go to each one of these, but I won't. The point is this, the Jews are going to glorify God for their liberality, for their liberality. He says it will be the proof, it will be the proof that will be given through this ministry, this action that they will do. It will prove that they are obedient to their confession, that they are serious about their confession of the gospel of Christ Jesus. In other words, words are cheap, right? Let's see how you live. Oh, you, you may say you love the Lord, you respect the Lord, you honor the Lord. And by the way, we live in a, we live in a country where moralism, that is the slogan of moralism today. Oh, I, I love the, the man upstairs. How many times have we heard that? I respect him. Yeah, I know God. I believe. Or how about this? This is a real big one today. I've got a relationship, right? I've got, I've got a relationship. I might not go to church. I may not read my Bible or pray or do the things you do, but I've got a relationship nonetheless. You see, that's moralism. That's the idea that you know, all you have to do is espouse some sort of association and, and respect to God and that that is religion enough. As long as you fulfill a couple moral duties, you are okay. As long as you visit the church on, on Christmas or Easter, you're a Christian. That kind of thing is everywhere. But for Paul, like James, so I'm going to ask you to turn to James chapter 2. For Paul, like James, the works, the obedience... The, the, the gift here in this, in this circumstance is just one example of the, the principle that applies to all of our lives in a million different ways. But here, the church's obedience and their contribution was the proof that they were making good on their confession to the gospel. In other words, to their faith. In other words, they were proving that they did not have dead faith. Where does the Bible talk about dead faith? Right here. James 2, beginning in verse 14, says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Now, the NASB, being very careful to translate this correctly, says, Can that faith save him? That's a demonstrative pronoun specifying a particular type of faith. What kind of faith? That faith. Spoken faith. Stated faith. Faith that is alone. 
as he'll go on to say. He says, if a brother or sister without, is without clothing and in need of daily food, notice they're not in need of abundance, but they're just in need of daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. You are justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works, works that vivify and quicken our faith and show that our faith is alive. It's beautiful. I want to point out as well that God is glorified in man's obedience. They will glorify God because of their obedience. You see that? There is something particularly glorifying to God in our obedient life. The fact that we are obedient. And Paul is confident that the saints in Jerusalem, that they will boast in God and not in the gift, just like himself in Philippians 4. So he says that they will glorify God because of their obedience. They will recognize, they will respect these Gentile converts they will, they will say what Paul says. If you look at Galatians chapter 2, uh, you see kind of a, a parallel context here, almost a same idea. Matter of fact, overlapping idea so that if you were doing a harmony here, this is one of the passages you would pull in place because it speaks of the very thing that we're talking about here in this contribution to the poor saints in Jerusalem. But to show you the type of equality that Paul's after here, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, listen to what this says. He says, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, that's the Jews, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10, this is why I read the whole thing. They not only asked us, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Now what poor is that? I believe the poor mentioned here in Galatians 2.10 is a reference to the poor in, the, in Jerusalem. The same group of people being talked about in Corinth, the poor in Jerusalem. The commentaries also bear that out. Now, the other thing that it produces, as it produces this, this uh, glory to God, glorifying God, is that it will also produce prayer to God, prayer to God, prayer in God's people. Look at verse 14. It says, they will also by prayer on your behalf, they will yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Beautiful. But prayer is a major focus. Paul makes it clear that the Jewish Christians will be responding to this work, this work of grace, by praying on their behalf. Praying on their behalf. In other words, the church will increase in its prayer 
and it will increase in its affection for the Corinthians. That's what he says. By prayer, they will yearn for you. Interesting language. The word yearn just literally means a, a strong desire. It means, a, it means a, a, an elevating of the affections. All of a sudden, these Jewish Christians will love these Corinthian believers in a newfound way. And it will drive them to prayer. Isn't that great? In other words, their love is not superficial. Their love is actually intercessory. It, they, they will intercede for their brothers and sisters. Christian love has become, sadly, too oftentimes a cliche, right? I love you, brother. Love you, sister. Love you, guys. I love you. If we really love one another the way Scripture calls us to, then we will be on our knees for one another. Think about that. I know for myself, I can honestly say, no greater thing would show me that you truly love me other than that I know you're praying for me. You're on your knees before the throne of grace, interceding on my behalf, lifting me up to the Father as your brother in Christ. Prayer, the, the interesting thing here is that prayer really manifests on our sincerity, right? Oh, we can, we can pray, you know, perfunctory prayers, as prayers that are irreverent, prayers that are not really meaningful. But if you're honest before God, and when you get with God in prayer, the Spirit, which is called in John 16, 13, the Spirit of truth, boy, He has a way of breaking down the walls, Right? of tearing down our facades. When we get before God in prayer, there is just a sweet, unique conviction that comes over us so that we have to be honest before God. I pray that that's where we're at. I pray our hearts are sensitive like that before God, that we are genuine in our praying for one another and praying at all. And what are they praying for? What is the content of their prayer all about? They are praying because of the surpassing grace of God in them. They are praying because they are yearning for them. And they are yearning for them because of what? Because God's superfluous, abundant, great grace is being manifested in them. How? Because of their generosity. Because of this abundant super abundant, as some have called it, the super abundant grace of God, the grace that overcomes our sin, grace greater than our sin. That is what this grace is. God's powerful grace working in the church, producing and sanctifying them to such a degree that it changes them. It's transforming them. It's making these otherwise skeptical, standoffish, hesitant, reluctant, maybe even covetous Corinthians into, into generous, participating, involved, intentional type of Corinthians church. That's what we want because of the surpassing grace of God. The word surpassing literally means it, it, it is that which extends beyond. It extends beyond. It's beautiful because although Corinth is way over here and Jerusalem is way down here and you can't just jump on a plane and fly over to Corinth, okay, in the first century, 
You can't even jump on a cell phone. You can't get on Skype. And so they're separated by a length of space. They're separated by geography, but they are united in spirit. And in prayer, one of the Puritans said, we launch out into the eternal realm, into the spiritual world. Oh, we can be connected with missionaries on the mission field through prayer. We can be connected with the church, the global church, through prayer. And that's what they were doing. And notice the God-centeredness of this prayer, right? Look at the God-centeredness of this prayer. What are they praying? Because of the grace of God in you. They are thanking God for what He is doing in them. I love it. They understand, like James, James chapter 1, verse 17, that what this church has is a good gift that comes down from above. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation and no shifting shadow or no shadow of turning. What does that mean? It comes from a reliable unchanging, immutable source, God. So with every good thing that God has given them, there's a potential to perfect these gifts, to bring them to their intended goal as they reach out in generosity. Isn't that amazing? People, people are united in this way. And when God's gifts are given to us, we can reach others. We can reach people's lives that are otherwise removed from our, our situation. I like what uh, Kent Hughes says here. He says, willing, generous, giving people, they enjoy sufficiency and a harvest of righteousness that goes far beyond themselves. That's right. That's why God blesses us. If there's one thing I want us to learn as Paul goes in this lengthy digression here into this whole thing about giving is that God gives us what we have so that we can in turn give to others, period. It's not to hoard. It's not to store. It's not to become greedy. It's not to become materialistic. It's not to become self-centered, self-focused, but it is to bless others. It is to bless others. Now, the other thing that this harvest of righteousness, we could say, is producing is the preeminence of God. At least a view of His preeminence in the midst of all of this. Paul, verse 15, then kind of speaks out loud about what he is thankful for. <laughs> Amazing. You know, he's talking about, look, they're going to pray, and this is what they're going to pray about, and th they're going to thank God, and this is what they're going to be thankful for. And then he says... Just, just explodes in doxology. He just explodes in prayer. He just interrupts everything with his own prayer. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, God is the greatest giver of all. That's the way you end. That's the way you begin, and that's the way you end every lesson on giving or anything having to do with finances, is don't forget who the greatest giver of all is, God. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. It is indescribable. It is a gift that leaves you awestruck. 
if you understand it rightly. The question is, is what is that gift? Corinthians are given money. What did God give? The money that they gave? Well, sure. But I'm sure it has a lot more to do with that. That has a lot more to do with, or has, you know, extends beyond that. It's not just, the indescribable gift is not just the gift that God gave to the Corinthians to give to the Jerusalem saints. I think this, because of the nature of the way that it's spoken, because the way it interrupts the flow and just sort of Paul now talking out loud, literally thanking God, his indescribable gift, I believe, is nothing less than Jesus Christ, his son that he gave. And um, I found support uh, from most of the commentators as far as that goes, MacArthur, Harris, Hughes, all these commentators ended in the same conclusion. This indescribable gift, it has to have gospel proportions. It has to. That's what Paul is getting at, and I think that's right. But uh, suffice it for now to say that what Paul is doing is he's setting out God as a preeminent giver. God gives the most because the giver gets the glory. And God gives, when he gives, he gets glory. You know, it's very important for us to remember in our own Christian lives, very practically, Remember that God gives more than you give. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We'll draw things to a close there. Matthew chapter 19, just to show you this principle, that you and I can never outgive God. That's so glorious to know. Right after Jesus said, it is impossible to be saved with man. But everything's possible with God. He goes on and he says, Peter, Peter responds, says, Behold, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? <laughs> what do we get for our sacrifice to you, for you, in following you, in surrendering our lives to you? What an amazing question, right? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, what's that? Not in your regeneration, in the regeneration. It, it, it means in the consummation, in the regeneration of all things, in the eschaton, at the end of the age, when it's all over, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also will sit upon 12, tro 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, this is the application for us. Because you say, well, yeah, but they're apostles. But look at verse 29. It's not just for apostles. Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Oh, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Don't try to elevate yourself. Don't try to seek great things for yourself. Don't seek your own preeminence in this life. Let God exalt you. Humble yourself. In due time, God will exalt you. That's what he's saying. So it doesn't matter what great the sacrifice or how great the sacrifice. It doesn't matter how small the sacrifice either. I don't think Jesus is not saying small sacrifices are any less. No, but he's saying, look, anyone 
who makes a sacrifice for the kingdom, it will be repaid to him as many times as much, and they will inherit what? Eternal life. How glorious is that? How amazing is that? That God is going to bless us beyond our wildest dreams. No martyr on the missionary field will ever complain about his sacrifice. No, nobody, when we get to heaven, Polycarp will not be complaining that he was burned at the stake. Difficult for us to fathom. But he will just stand in awe of his inheritance, and he will say that it was a small price to pay for what God is eternally going to give to him. God is the giver, the greatest giver, rather, he gives liberally, James 1.5, abundantly, Exodus 3.8. He gives providentially, Matthew 6.11. He enriches the lives of his people so that they will turn around and bless the people of God. Chapter 9, verses 8 and 11, we looked at that. Every conceivable thing, every conceivable way that we can think about, we cannot conceive of any of God's blessings apart from Christ. So I leave you with this. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, freely give us all things. You want a remarkable verse? I know I said I was coming to a close. I know you're hungry. I know you have plans. But I have to set this great and glorious truth before you to know just how much God has lavished you if you have eyes to see. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 21 to 23. This is not just a pie in the sky. We're not just awaiting some final future glory. It is now Brothers and sisters, you are abundantly supplied now, lavishly blessed now. But it's not the way the prosperity preachers tell you you are or you should be. 1 Corinthians 3.21 says, So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or things present, or things to come, everything belongs to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Isn't that amazing? Everything is for your advantage. What has God given you in the gospel? The ability to see everything around you to your advantage, even death, life, the world, if you know how to use these things for the glory of God and for the good of your soul, they are for you. They are for you. And you belong to Christ. I believe that is an explanatory clause. How does all this happen? Because you belong to Christ. That's how it happens. And that's why Paul can say, Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. Gain. It's all gain when God blesses you 
in salvation, in Jesus Christ, he gives you the ability to say that everything is gain. Your trials, gain. Your, your suffering, gain. Your death, gain. My grandmother is dying right now. She's in Southern California with my mother, and she's, they're giving her maybe three weeks. That's it. It's really been making me think about death, the eminence of it, the certainty of it, the absoluteness of it, the fact that we're all going to die. We're all headed there. Your heartbeat is your own marching drum to your own funeral. Should the Lord tarry, every single one of us is going to experience death. And I want to die with the view that dying is gain. I don't want to die angry at God. I don't want to die upset, frustrated. And so, I lay before you the counsel of Jay Adams, a guy who's counseled hundreds of thousands, probably thousands of people in his life. They asked him at the end of his life, he's already, he's already in his 80s himself, and he says, what advice, after counseling so many thousands of people, what is the ultimate advice that you have for people? You know what he said? He said, you better be very busy for God or you will die a very bitter person. I don't want to die bitter at God. I don't want to die looking like losing this life is l truly loss, like it's, like, like it's all over. I don't want to cling to this world. Jesus says, don't seek to save your life in this world. Learn the mystery of hating your life in this world for his sake. And when you die, it will be gain. Let's pray. Father, only by your grace and move of your spirit, you can make us have the right perspective, even of death. That you have lavished us so greatly in your son Jesus. You've given us such an abundant inheritance. You truly are the greatest giver of all. You truly are the one that gets the glory. Oh, Father, open our eyes. Give us eyes to see, Lord, when the trials are hard and heavy and fast and furious and vicious. And, Lord, when it just gets just uh, overwhelming. Help us to stop Help us to acknowledge the gift of your grace. Give us eyes to see, Lord, even in the practical things as we've learned here in chapter 8 and 9. Help us to see the practicality of giving to the glory of God. Even in our own generosity, our own support of the local church, give us the right perspective. I pray you bless your church today, Lord, and open our eyes to have more of the right perspective more of the time, all the time. We thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.